Dred Scott makes revolutionary art to propel history forward. He is a friend of Interference Archive, and in early September, we sat down to talk about material he donated to the archive, discussing art, life, politics, and the Chicago punk scene. So I am Dred Scott. We're sitting in Planet Brooklyn in the Interference Archives. And today's date, I believe, is September 9th of 2015 uh, on, I guess that would be the Julian calendar? I don't know. Um, no, it's not the Julian calendar. I don't know. What, what, some calendar that got some... I guess we'll start with the thing I'm seeing first. A poster that an artist named David Thorne did, and it was made for the Artist Network of Refuse and Resist, which he and I and other people were part of. It had a range of lawyers and activists and scholars and, and radicals and rebels and, and various and sundry people who thought that America was actually moving in a very sort of a resurgent America around the time. I mean, Ronald Reagan had ushered in this new kind of era where America was on the move, and that was causing great suffering throughout the world, including in the United States. And, and, and actually, one thing that's cool about the organization, in addition to sort of attempting to take on not just one sort of political onslaught. It wasn't just like, well, we're against racism or we're against capitalism or we're against the oppression of women or we're against uh, colonialism or invasions of countries. It was sort of like, no, you have to take on the whole package. At a certain point, a grouping of artists that were working with Refuse and Resist said, look, we need to form an artist network. And it wasn't just visual artists. It was visual artists, musicians, poets, actors, playwrights. This helps date it because Keith Haring actually designed the logo for Refuse and Resist. Um, and so it must have been around 87 or so, or, or prior to that, that it was formed. It was sort of this, this dancing fist inside a, a handcuff, like a broken handcuff. It's cool. Um, this is a poster that has text that says, The bad apple never falls far from the tree. And th- there's a row of cops that have bunches of plungers in their hands. And there was a man, Abner Louima. He was a Haitian immigrant, and they picked him up and they tortured him. It may have turned out that it was a broomstick, but the initial reports were they shoved a plunger up his butt. Um, And the only way we really know about this is that he was eventually taken to a hospital and the nurse there wouldn't go along with the police story. So it came out that there were these several cops that held this guy for hours and just beat the crap out of him. And so Dave made this thing, because there's this expression, you know, that says um, the apple you know, never falls far from the tree. And they also say, you know, the cops that, you know, brutalize or murder people, oh, that's one bad apple. Mostly cops are good. And so this is sort of saying, well, actually, they're, they're all birds of a feather. Police brutalizing people in this country is... is uh, very much par for the course. The enemy will not perish of himself. Join us. This was a poster that I did um, that was inspired by the L.A. rebellion, the rebellion that happened in response to the government not convicting the cops who uh, beat Rodney King, who was a motorist in um, Los Angeles, to the cops dragged out of his car and, and beat mercilessly. There were, I think, about 12 cops, and they hit him with nightsticks and tasers and 
And the thing that was unusual, I mean, this is the beginning of people starting to have video cameras. This was not the time when everybody had a cell phone that had a video camera. This was um, back in the day when you had to have this big old thing, and most people didn't have them. And so the cops, you know, in L.A., you know, were notorious for brutalizing and jacking people up and beating them senseless, you know, particularly black people and Latino people. But they never got caught on tape before. And so finally, you know, there was evidence like, we got you. You know, this is, and it's like, you know, a lot of white people kind of incredulous at what, People were saying, no, this is how the police do us all the time. And it's like it's on tape. We figured, oh, you know, there's 87 seconds of this guy being beaten. Clearly he's, you know, on the ground and in submission. There's no way they can't get convicted of this. Well, in the initial trial, they didn't get convicted. And so people had this really righteous rebellion. And so this um, piece that I made, it has six images. Four of them are from L.A. One's from the People's War in Peru and a picture of me in a kafia and dark glasses. And the text is, the enemy will not perish of himself, which is uh, attributed to Mao Zedong. Um, and it says, join us. And so the, this was a poster that I made and then I put up in New York and got other people to put up in other parts of the country. Um, um, so you put these just out in the street? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's what you do with posters. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't have... I, Hell, if I could have done billboards, I would have... You know, if, if I had a company that would do it, but I did. You know, it's like it's a small poster and it's a... You know, intervention, and yeah, you know, I gave them to friends, but I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I'm an artist. Most of my work shows in galleries and museums, but I've always, I've, I tell people, you know, I show anywhere from major museums to street corners with or without permission, because I think people, ordinary people, you know, that might not go in a museum have every much as right and need to have compelling, engaging art to talk about the moments we live in, and so Coca-Cola can stick their advertising all over the place. Why can't I put up my art? And it actually was. A very necessary response to a tremendous outrage, and so, and then trying to join that with an actual, you know, people's war struggle for liberation, um, you know, that was going on at the time, was something that I felt was was important. I mean, it's and yeah, and the printing on this is not great. You know, it's like it was a very fast production, and in, in having, I mean, it's like now it's a lot easier given the type of computers that we have and and stuff to to do better quality printing. And this was just like I needed something cheap that I could put on the walls quickly. One form of division that exists in the art world is the is sort of like, you know, the high-low street art versus real art or whatever. Nobody's trying to put this stuff in context. And, the, and, and I mean, many of the artists, that most of them had some sort of studio gallery practice of some sort, but felt a real need to do this other sort of activist engaged work. I mean, you know, it's... It's like in addition to making the art and in addition to going to demonstrations and organizing demonstrations, we were trying to make art that talked about this that sometimes was more accessible. I mean, you know, it's, these are cheap. I can, you know, make 2,000 of them and stick them on walls and then give them away to friends. And so, you know, that's, I think, true with a lot of these, you know, other artists that they, they wanted an outlet for some of this work that, you know, they might be showing in a museum one day, but then there's this other stuff that needs to get said that the museums weren't interested in showing, and the people that we wanted to reach also weren't necessarily going to the museums. How did you first start becoming conscious of the world, politically conscious, uh, socially aware, I don't know, however you want to... Well, America's a fucking good teacher. I grew up in, <laughs> in Ronald Reagan's America. I mean, I don't know if everybody experienced it the same way, but... Growing up in that era, there was a persistent threat of, of nuclear holocaust. And while both that was actually true, I mean, some people ignored it, I think, but that was something that you're growing up and you realize, wait a minute, 
the world could end, at least in you know mammalian life could end, and then you start to understand well because two heads of empire on either side of an ocean are trying to expand and consolidate their empire and they're willing to destroy the world to do that. That's crazy. There's something deeply and profoundly wrong with a system that does that. And so, you know, when you're 15, 16, 17, you don't have all the political theory to go into that or even the history to go into all of that, but you do know there's something really fucking wrong and that the adults that are just kind of going along with the world the way it is, regardless of whether they're adults in your life or elected officials or news pundits or whomever, they're absolutely crazy. They're just sticking their heads in the sand and hoping for you know to, to muddle through. And then you know you start looking. I mean, I I grew up in Chicago. I grew up in the on the south side of Chicago, which was predominantly black. But the broader neighborhood I was in that was fairly integrated. It was near the University of Chicago. And I went to this private school from first grade on on the north side of Chicago, which is mostly white, and the school was affluent. And so, you know, I traveled sort of by the housing projects to get to school. And so most of the kids at my school, they wouldn't leave, you know, about a two-mile radius of their block except to go to maybe Switzerland or something like that. I, on the other hand, could see both this profound affluence and also this significant poverty. And, you know, if you're at all paying attention, you say, there's something to learn here. But you can, you know, just pretend that that you don't actually live in the house of Tony Soprano, that there isn't all this robbery going on all over the world that's actually why you have the wealth that you do. You could pretend that, and many people in my position did that, although it's harder for black people to continue to live that fantasy than than for white people, because frankly, it's like at any moment, the police can come in and destroy your life. At any moment, you you slip up one other area, Everything can change. In it. There, there is this gnawing, even if you are Jay-Z, you can kind of pretend that, hey, you, you're a self-made man, you got all this stuff going on, and you'll never get cast out. Well, actually, you can. I mean, at a certain point, you know, Jay-Z could really get, you know, drive in the wrong place, he could get pulled over for driving while black, and a cop could say, fucking, I don't care who you are, Mr. Z, I can fuck you up. And yeah, you might sue my ass, but then again... I'll claim that you were a fucking drug dealer and shoot you and nobody will do shit to me. So this is the world I'm growing up in. And so when I'm 15, 16, 17, you know, and I, I you know, tell people, like I say, Joe Strummer saved my life because I got into punk rock. Because that, you know, punk rock, and that made sense. So you're growing up where, you know, these people are trying to destroy the world. And, and here, here's this rebel music that is, you know, it's contradictory. There's a lot of bullshit in it. There's fascist, you know, punk rock. But there's some real people with heart, and, and some of them actually knew some shit. And it made sense. It made way more sense than whatever was on the TV at the time and, and in the newspapers. But I knew there was this punk rock stuff. I didn't know anything about it. I just went to a show, and it was like, this is really weird, and I kind of liked it. And so this is a flyer that's, I mean, a crappy Xeroxed flyer. That This is one of the less well-designed things. I mean, it's just really an announcement for a show. I'm live at the Central American Social Club. But... This was not mainstream music. This was a bunch of misfits who couldn't fit into society, which, you know, again, Ronald Reagan's America was like greed, look out for number one, fuck everybody else to get rich, it's glorious. Um, just, you know, yuppies and, and, and all of that just crass, you know, individualism and, and looking out for self and uh, ignorance and arrogance. And, and so, you know, these were people that 
wanted to make music and wanted to say something with the music and we're going to find a way to do it and the Central American Social Club was this hall that could get rented out I mean it was you know the people I mean the you know production label you know Wasteland Records and Global 2000 you know they said all right hey if we give you 500 bucks can we have this for you know the night and they're all sure you know and so th this was the I mean th there were a lot of different little clubs but the Central American Social Club the hall as, as we call it I mean that was the really cool place that was the most DIY did it was not a bar it was a social club that allowed these weird punks to come in and there were other places that had shows but this was the, this was a really cool place i mean there was a place called cubby bear which was actually a sports bar across the street from wrigley field and for whatever reason they thought oh well we're not gonna make much money at that hour of the day we'll let these punks come in we'll get the bar they'll get their music or whatever but it at least initially, they were all overages shows. And so the kids, who there was a lot of kids who were into punk, and when I say kids, I mean, you know, like 12, 14, 16, 19, you know, couldn't legally drink in Chicago. And so, yeah, Chicago would often look the other way if you were like 19, but if you were 16, you weren't getting into to a lot of these places. And and so, you know, the hall was a place that they were all ages shows, and it, it wasn't driven by how much money the bar is going to make. And so it was really completely DIY. So, uh, the Sapphires, live at Gaspar's. That was a small-ass show at Metro, hand-drawn flyer, um, Toxic Reasons. Again, um, a really cool band. Uh, this one, Kaleidoscope. That was, they may have only had five shows there ever or something. Clearly, the graphic design department at Tuts had access to computers to typeset all this stuff. And Big Black, Steve Albini's band, you know? Um, and, uh... Playing songs from their album Racer X, all hand-drawn. West End was a, a small club. Again, maybe with a crowbar you could fit like 350 people in there. And, you know, I mean, look, this is, you know, it's like, it's a scribble. And I actually kind of like it. But it's, you know, this is a Xerox flyer. That I mean, this is way before Photoshop and Quark Express or PageMaker or, or anything. I mean, this is somebody drew this and literally cut and pasted. But this is a hand-redrawn version of their logo that was then cut and pasted into the drawing. And it's, so this is this is cool and stuff you wouldn't see nowadays simply because technology is different and so people would design this in their computer. Even if it's a crappy design, it would be in the computer. Right to the Accused sticker. Okay, this is a sticker that was... Right to the Accused was a band of, like, little kids then, actually. They, they were, like, um, probably all about... 15 at the time the band formed. Fudge Tunnel's claim to fame is that guy, the visual artist Dred Scott, used to be in this band. They were awful, but, and in part because he really couldn't play guitar well, but none of them were particularly good musicians. And so this was, you know, a band. I mean, it's like we had 13 gigs total. We, we tried and we, we were not very good. So we, we so the, uh, the industry passed judgment on where us. Would, where would you get a flyer like this? Um, well, you'd get given them at shows, and you and they'd be left at record stores and 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 oh yeah, record stores. People don't know what those are. Um, there were places where people would go to buy pieces of plastic that had a hole in the center that would rotate around a fixed axis, and you would stick a needle um, onto. And there were places that instead of going to Spotify, you'd actually go to a physical place. And you would ask the person behind there if it was a cool store. Hey, does this sound good? And they would say, Oh yeah. But they'd also have places where flyers, you know, there were flyers. And so you might pick this up at a store like Vintage Vinyl or Wax Tracks, which were kind of more alternative. And the thing, you know, that I I think, 
as as an old crusty person now, I miss about record store that I, that I wonder what has sort of taken the place of it is it was and in addition to a place where you had to go if you wanted to hear certain kinds of music which you couldn't just like say oh i want to hear the descendants and go to spotify or itunes and and just download something you actually had to go get this thing but there was also a culture there and that that's what i mean it's like you know it's like i don't i think being able to sit at my computer and hear any hear more music than i could as a kid is good but not having a place to congregate and say, hey, what about this band? What are you doing? Are you going to this demonstration? Hey, who's this person? Who's cool? We're looking for a guitarist. All that stuff has to exist somehow, but it doesn't exist in the same form. I had a bunch of vinyl, which I actually just sold, but people have that. That's fairly well collected, and you can go on eBay and, oh, well, I've got enough money, I can buy X, Y, and Z. But this stuff just you know, got kind of lost. Nobody was saving crap like this. And, you know, it was just in a box. And I knew that it would be an, import, an important record in, of the times. And so the music is somewhat preserved. I mean, Spotify, which is a drag, but you probably can find Seven Seconds. So, you know, Spotify claims to have it. There's a lot of stuff that I had that, you know, isn't on Spotify. And so the whole sections of popular or, or culture has been erased, which is a problem. But it still does kind of, ex- most of this kind of exists. This stuff, again, you know, that, that was a particular aesthetic that people were doing at a particular time, these were people that just wanted to make culture. And it was very DIY, and it was about the scene. It was about the people, and it was not about the rock stars. It was about the ordinary people. And so that spirit of, like, I've got something new. I, I'm on to something that nobody else is doing and other people will like. And I got a flyer for this. That's actually really great. That that connection of that that individual, like we're trying to do something new. The 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 people who are running the world are insane and they're causing great harm. And we're going to do something to make culture against that and about that. And even if it's just I hate my dad. My dad's a jerk. We move to the suburbs and I don't have anything to do. And fuck you, dad and there's nothing for me to do and you've got your corporate bullshit and there's nothing for me to do and I don't want to be a cog in your fucking war machine you know well that's good that's <laughs> there needs to be that spirit and these are the fires that, that were the people who were doing that <laughs>